you don't even know what I'm going to say. How do you know if you want to clap or not? Um, You know, if you don't like uh, cold breakfasts, you can always just dip whatever you're eating into the hot drink, and it's kind of like a warm breakfast, so you can still have that if you want. Um, For those of you that don't know me, uh, most of you guys do. My name is Jeremy Walker, and like John said, I work with Christian Challenge at USC. Uh, also help with the uh, First Impressions team here at Church in the Valley. Um, and as he was talking about counting down the days for Christmas, you know, my family's really excited about that too. Uh, we, uh, our kids do the, some of you guys probably do this too, little chocolate advent calendars. And like, that's the best part of their morning. They like run into the kitchen, or at least William Waddle's in the kitchen. You know, Corey runs in the kitchen and she's like excited to eat her chocolate because that's the one piece of sweet she can have before breakfast. So she gets excited about that. You know, we've been binging on, Christmas music and all sorts of Christmas stuff. So we're excited for this time of year, and I hope you guys are too. Um, this morning, like John said, I'm going to be talking about the topic of the secret to a refreshed life. And uh, I picked this topic because I had a sneaking suspicion. Many of you are probably like me in that even if you're excited about uh, the Christmas season and the holiday season in general, you're probably at a point in the year when you're thinking, I could use a little bit of refreshment. You know, I'm a little bit tired. Um, I doubt many of you are thinking, no, actually, Jeremy, uh, I'm totally refreshed. In fact, I don't think I could be even more refreshed. I don't know why we're talking about this. Um, I doubt that's the case for many of you are. So I hope that this topic kind of hits you uh, at a place where you're at right now. But before we jump in, if you haven't gotten to share with your neighbor enough, we're going to do that again. I want you to take uh, just two minutes real quick. And I want you to share one of two things with uh, your neighbor next to you. One, either... Share a well-known, like a, a brief, well-known kind of unique story to your family, like, oh, everybody remembers the time that dad did such and such, or, you know, grandma says so-and-so, or something like that. Or uh, I want you to share kind of a unique uh, family trait that's been passed down to you. Maybe it's like, you know, my family really valued um, hard work or honesty or whatever it may be. So share a well-known family story or a unique family trait that's sort of part of your family heritage, and then we're going to come back together. So take about two minutes to do that, starting now.
Take about 10 more seconds and wrap that up. All right. <clears throat> when we come back together, I, I hope, uh, I hope you guys got to hear some fun things about the people next to you. If you didn't get to finish that story, well, you can go to lunch after this and you can tell the rest of the story. Those are, those are fun. Those are fun conversations. You get to learn some interesting things about people. Um, for me personally, now many of you will know this, but, uh, one of the stories for this kind of a family tree and thing of my life growing up was, uh, my family really liked to have um, people in our home all the time. We constantly had people over. Uh, we would have students over from USC over for meals and just doing all sorts of things at our house uh, all the time, uh, which, you know, begins to add up. It can get costly, especially when you're, you know, a family of six on uh, one income and not a very big one at that. No offense, Dad. Uh, but, um, but it just adds up. You know, we had students constantly over our house uh, just to hang out or to, if they needed a place to stay, we'd have students stay with us for a night at a time, sometimes multiple years at a time. Some of you guys have probably lived in my parents' house at one point or another. Um, and our garage was rarely uh, actually used for the things they were designed for, cars. Um, so we would normally have uh, student stuff stored in our garage for any weeks or months or semesters at a time. Um, you never knew how many people had keys to our house at any given point. So if they decided they just wanted to break in, they probably could. Um, and it was normal, you know, it was just normal that people would stop over our house unannounced. It was just kind of like an open door policy at any given point. Um, it was normal that we would have anywhere from 30 to 60 people over our house at Thanksgiving time uh, because the students or the people around the neighborhood didn't have a place to go home during the holidays or it was too expensive to travel. Um, and I remember the first time I had Thanksgiving with my family or not with my family in Oklahoma with my wife's family back when we were dating in college. And there were about 10 of us there. It was like Katie and, and her mom and siblings and her aunt, a couple of cousins. But even with about 10 to 12 of us there, I was like, it's kind of small. Like, where's everybody? You know, like, um, but then it dawned on me, oh, wait, I think this is actually normal for the rest of the country. Like, I'm the odd one here. This is, this is not uh, normal to have 50 to 60 people at your house for Thanksgiving. Um, but these kind of things were just normal growing up. This, this idea of, just radical inclusiveness and generosity and hospitality. Um, now, with my wife and I and our kids, you know, those are something we've tried to really build as convictions in our lives. But growing up, that wasn't like a conviction. It was just normal. That was just what we did. I didn't know any different. Um, that was just part of my family heritage. Well, this morning, as, part, as we're looking at the idea of the secret to refreshed life, I want us to talk about another man's family heritage and something that came from him. And that is King Solomon of Israel. Now, some of you may know that King Solomon was the son of the great King David of Israel. But slightly less common, uh, some of you may know this, is that Solomon was the great-great-grandson of a woman named Ruth. And Ruth was actually only one of two women to have a book of the Bible named after her. So she's kind of a big deal. Um, now, according to the Bible, Solomon was given great wisdom from God. Uh, such that it was said in the Bible that no one before him or after him outside of Jesus himself had as much wisdom as Solomon did. And among Solomon's many accomplishments, it says that he wrote that he actually wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs, which is a book in the Old Testament just full of uh, daily life, you know, practical wisdom for how to live everyday life. And this morning, I want us to look at one of those Proverbs that he wrote, uh, which talks about really, I think, the secret to a refreshed life. 
And then to better grasp that proverb, I want us to look at how this proverb played its way out in the everyday life of his great-great-grandmother, Ruth. Because the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but I can imagine that when Solomon would sit down to write these different proverbs, he probably wasn't writing them in a vacuum. He probably wasn't just making them up out of thin air. It was pro- They probably came out about as a result of observation and reflection on, on his life and the lives of people around him and thinking about all the stories he had heard growing up from his dad and his grandparents and the, the family line that you know preceded him. And I'm convinced after reflecting on this proverb myself over the last several years that I can't help but think there's no way he wrote this without having his great-great-grandmother Ruth in the background of thinking about her life and the life that she lived because her life was actually a living picture of this proverb. In fact, as you'll see, almost all the people in the story of Ruth actually were living pictures of this proverb. Now, the reason I titled the message The Secret to a Refreshed Life is because how we achieve real achieve real lasting refreshment is actually not very intuitive. Um, at least it isn't to me. Maybe, maybe it is to you. But um, if it was intuitive, I doubt God would have had to use the wisest man that ever lived to be the first one to write it down. Um, now, it's not that people don't experience real refreshment because they do, but I think oftentimes people couldn't replicate that because they're not exactly sure what led to the refreshment that they experience. But thanks to God, it was written down, and so we can actually know it and be able to apply it into our everyday life. So I want us to read this secret, and then we're going to have some fun looking at uh, examples of this in Solomon's great-great-grandmother's life, Ruth. So it's up here on the screen. The secret is this, Proverbs 11.25. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Now, I don't know about you, but the first few times I read that verse, I thought, nah, like, you know, okay, Solomon, I know you're wise, but even wise people miss it every now and then. Like, I don't... I'm not really sure if that's true. Because, see, for me, it's probably, and this is probably the case for many of you, I had the idea, no, the way you refresh yourself is you treat yourself. You know, you, you go out and you, and you focus on yourself. You do what is good for you. You do what you want because who else is going to focus on you other than you? But what Solomon is saying here is the exact opposite. Um, if he were here today, I, I imagine he would say something like, you know, believe me, I know that this looks like one of those nice proverbs that you find in a fortune cookie, but isn't actually true. But I'm telling you, this is reality. You know, if if uh, real refreshment was found in treating yourself, I would know. You know, I'm the most, I'm the richest, most powerful king Israel's ever had. If anyone's ever treated himself, it's me. You know, look at all the things I did for myself. Um, but what he would say is, you know, actually real lasting refreshment is found in as you seek to refresh other people, and then you trust God to really refresh you in one way or another. And if you need examples, just look at my great-grandmother Ruth. You know, she was a living picture of this. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, now, to give you a little bit of background on the story of Ruth, Ruth actually took place um, about 1100 B.C. Uh, during the time of the Judges in the Old Testament. Now, to say that the time of the Judges, if for those of you who aren't familiar with that passage or that time of history in the in the uh, nation of Israel, to say that it was a low point in the nation of Israel would be a major understatement. In fact, uh, the religious and the, the moral kind of degeneracy of, of the culture at that time and the national disunity was at like an all-time high, you know, kind of like America today in a lot of ways. Um, so even though 
this story took place a long time ago. Actually, there's a lot of relatability to just the moral religious atmosphere that was going on then that, that we see in our culture today. However, in the midst of these dark times, one of the things that you see is that God is still mightily working to uh, draw people to himself and to work in the lives of those people that are choosing to follow him, just like he's doing today. And the story of Ruth is one of those examples. As we go through the story, one of the things I also want you to, to notice, if, if it's not just apparent, is that there are no overt miracles in this story. Um, you know, there's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no water turned into wine. There's no people, uh, you know, coming to life from the dead. But what you see, you still see the fingerprint of God all over this story as he is orchestrating things such that as people are seeking to be a refreshment to others, they are themselves being refreshed in one way or another. And one thing, something else I want you to see in this story is uh, one of the big things we'll see later on towards the end is that the big story that God's really writing of how, he, and throughout history, of how he's trying to really um, redeem people back to himself and restore them into relationship with him is moved along step by step throughout this story as the characters in the story of Ruth are continuing to choose to not make life about them, but to actually choose to be a refreshment to those around them. So let's dive in. Uh, in Ruth chapter 1, it says this. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Now, for those of you that like to kind of picture, you know, the places that are being talked about, here's a map um, on the next slide. It's, it's a little hard to read some of the cities, but if you look at that first circle, this is kind of Israel at the time of the judges. That circle on the top, that's sort of where Bethlehem is. And then way down here on the other side of the Dead Sea, that's kind of the other country of Moab. So you get a little picture. It wasn't like they were just going across town. I mean, they, they went a ways away to get where they were going. And they went on foot or at best, you know, on camels or donkeys. Um, now, the story goes on to mention that uh, the name of Naomi's two sons, but they're so hard to pronounce and they're not alive long enough for me to even embarrass myself trying to pronounce them, so I won't. Um, but just know that she had two sons. So as time passes on, Moab in Moab, Naomi's two sons get older, and they're ready to get married and have a family, but they don't live in Israel, so they have to marry Moabite women. So one son marries a woman named Orpah, and the other marries a woman named Ruth. Then the story goes on that say that over the course of about 10 years, uh, this family begins to experience some really great loss. You know, uh, Na- first, first Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Uh, then both of her sons end up dying. And not only that, but they end up dying before they're able to have kids. So over the course of about a decade, Naomi is left husbandless, childless, and grandchildless in this foreign country that she's not a citizen of. Now, just to help you understand sort of the gravity of this situation, I mean, that would be hard if that happened to someone today. But back then, the, the financial and physical livelihood of a woman was so tied to the men in her life, whether it be her husband or her father or her brothers, that um, she was in a really tough spot because there wasn't a lot of work to be found for single women back then. And not only that, but Naomi's getting older. She's old, you know. She's not the young catch that she was when she was younger. So the idea of her getting remarried again is probably pretty low. So really all she has left at this point in her life is her two widowed daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. But yet what she does next starts the process of this cycle of acts of refreshment that we see throughout the story. 
So Naomi realizes how desolate her situation is, but she's like, well, if it's going to be desolate. I might as well be desolate back home in Judah where my family is rather than here in this foreign country. So she decides to begin to make the trek back with her daughters-in-law back to Jerusalem or back to Bethlehem in Judah. And as, as she's going along, and it's not really clear if this is like at the beginning of the journey or several days in, but as she's going along, Naomi realizes that what she's doing, she's actually kind of focusing on herself rather than what's best for her daughters-in-law. So she does something, she says something so considerate, so kind, knowing that this is really going to cost her. And she says to her daughters-in-law, in Ruth 1, 8, 9, says, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness uh, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find the rest in the home of another husband. So she basically releases Orpah and Ruth to go back to their country and to get married again, which, you know, according to Israelite law, like, she didn't have to do that. In fact, they were not allowed to marry outside of the family they had married into. Uh, But instead of holding these women to this, Naomi chooses to release them, knowing that this is, she's really releasing her only real chance of livelihood, you know, these two young women. Uh, And so as you expect, you know, the women hug and they cry and they say their goodbyes and because, uh, you know, they're not going to probably see each other ever again. And then uh, Orpah begins to head back home, but not Ruth. No, Ruth chooses instead to actually r- reply to this act of refreshment with another act of refreshment by saying something that's probably one of the greatest pictures of loyalty and love you see in all the Old Testament. She says to Naomi um, in verse 16, she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now just think about that, what she said to her for a second. Like, that's pretty heavy. Like, has anyone ever said something like that to you? You know, other than that one time in college that my wife said that to me and I thought, okay, she's pretty serious about this. Like, I probably should marry her. You know, like no one's ever said that. To, no, she didn't say that to me, but uh, it was implied. Um, so I knew better than that. Uh, no, but I mean, like this was an incredible act of like, you know, I'm sticking with you no matter what. And really what Ruth was doing is she was kind of throwing her lot in with Naomi, which given what was going to be happening in the future, it wasn't a very, uh, it was a very uncertain future and probably a very dangerous and, and uh, just scary future. So the story goes on. They get to Bethlehem and the town isn't very big. So word begins to spread fast. You know what all has happened to Naomi because she left 10 years ago with a husband and two sons. And now she's coming back with this random Moabite woman and all the men in her life are gone. Um, but also news begins to spread about what Ruth has done and in this act, incredible act of love that she's displayed to Naomi. So once they get back and get, begin to get settled, Ruth and Naomi realize, well, we got to do something for food. And when Ruth, uh, and this is when Ruth steps up again with another act of refreshment. It says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind any of those who I find favor. Now, just to give a backdrop to what Ruth is doing, she's not saying, hey, let me go steal some stuff. <laughs> what she's saying is uh, there's a law back in the time of Israel called the law of gleaning, which basically said that um, during this was during the harvest time, which is what the time was going on when Naomi and Ruth got to Bethlehem. 
And basically, the, the harvesters would go through their fields, and they would get one pass at picking up the grain that was in their fields. And after that, they didn't pick up any more grain because the grain that was left over was left there intentionally so that orphans and widows and poor people and foreigners could come in and they could pick up the leftover grain and actually have something to eat. However, because Israel was kind of in such a a morally bankrupt time in their history, uh, this was a really dangerous thing for a woman to do, especially a foreign woman, because it wasn't uncommon for women to get attacked and even raped in these fields while they were gleaning. So uh, Ruth was really um, knowingly putting herself in harm's way to serve her older mother-in-law and be a refreshment to her. Well, it turns out of all the fields that Ruth could have uh, chosen to begin to glean, and she ends up gleaning in a field belonging to this man named Boaz, who was a distant relative of Elimelech, you know, the late husband of Naomi. And one day Boaz notices Ruth gleaning in the fields, and so he asks the overseer of his harvesters who she was, and he tells Boaz, oh, that's the Moabite woman that came back from Moab with Ruth. So Boaz, who is an older and kind and godly man, and had no doubt heard about the love that Ruth had displayed to his relative Naomi, he decides, you know, I'm going to be a refreshment to Ruth. So he says to her, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go st- and, and don't go stay from here. Um, and don't go away from here. Sorry. Stay here with the woman, with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have, the men have filled. Then later on, he offers her some food from his table. And it says that she just ate until she was completely full, which is probably an experience that she had not had in a very long time, having a full belly. Um, Boaz even goes as far to tell his men, hey, you know what? Leave some of the grain that you guys picked up. Leave that on the ground intentionally so that she's got more stuff to pick up than what she can naturally glean on her own. And, I mean, you begin to look at this guy's characters like, man, this guy's a stud. Like, I mean, who who wouldn't want to be a Boaz? I mean, other than the fact that he's named Boaz. Um, and who wouldn't want, you know, a guy like the name Boaz? And so, because what he's doing is he's intentionally seeking the provision and the protection of this foreign woman who he's never, he's not known for more than a couple of minutes, and he doesn't know anything about her other than the fact that, you know, she's been very, very kind to one of his relatives. And not only that, but this is going to cost Boaz not only grain, but it's going to cost him money that he could have sold the other grain for. It's also going to cost him a lot of bickering probably from his men that are kind of like, well, why do we have to leave our hands off? Or why can't, you know, have our way with there and stuff? So, so he's kind of, you know, taking one for the team here by doing this. So when Ruth gets home and tells Naomi all that's happened and, and how she has met this man named Boaz, Naomi, for the first time since probably her husband and, and sons died, like gets excited, like and she starts praising God. Uh, then Naomi tells Ruth how Boaz is one of her close relatives and a kinsman redeemer to their family. Now, this idea kinsman redeemer is is it's a popular uh, idea throughout the story of of Ruth, but it's not like a term we use today. So probably the best way you can think about like what a kinsman redeemer would be today is like think of like a really rich uncle that you have, or if you don't have one, like imagine you had a really rich uncle. Um, it doesn't even have to be an uncle. It could be kind of like a distant relative. And they're sort of like the relative you call, like when you're in a bind, you need them to do something, kind of like the godfather or something like that. Like, I could use a favor. Uh, um, so that's kind of what the kinsman redeemer is. And back then they really had about one of four roles they would typically pay, play in a, in their family's life. First, like 
they would uh, redeem or they, they'd buy back land uh, that was family land that had been sold um, by a family member because they had to make ends meet. Or they might actually buy back the family members that had been sold into slavery because they were in debt up to their eyeballs. Um, or third, one of the things they would do is they would, uh, they would avenge the death of a relative. You know, that's why they were sometimes called, you know, kinsmen avengers, you know, the, the real first avengers, you know, not Captain America and the rest of those guys. But so they would avenge the death. Or the fourth thing they would do is they would marry uh, the widow of a deceased relative who had not had children yet. And they would have children with that widow so that not only was she protected, but the family name of their deceased relative could go on. And it's in regards to this last role of a kinsman redeemer that Naomi thought Boaz could help Ruth out. So Naomi, realizing she's getting older and will eventually die and leave Ruth alone in this foreign country, decides, you know what? I need to step in here and be a refreshment to my daughter-in-law, Naomi. So she decides to play a little bit of matchmaker which is, you know, a great thing for all moms to do. Um, now, I won't go into all the details, but essentially what Naomi does is she sets up a situation where Ruth and Boaz can be kind of alone and one-on-one, and Ruth can really can ask Boaz, hey, would you consider uh, taking me as your wife? And this is Boaz's response to Ruth. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Translation, you're willing to marry an old guy like me, you know, and not go after all these younger guys? Yes, you know, like, so he's pretty excited about that. Um, and he says, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. And the people of my town, all the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. And although it is true that I am a kinsman redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. So stay here for the night. Now, he's not saying, stay here for the night. Um, what he's, like we would think in our culture today, but he's saying, you know, hey, stay here and then you can go back home in the morning. Like, I'll give you a place to stay. Um, in the morning, he wants you to do, uh, if he wants to do his duty as your kinsman redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So Boaz, being the honorable guy that he is, he first checks with his closer kinsman redeemer to see if he would marry Ruth. But the closer kinsman redeemer actually refuses because he's afraid that it's going to get, uh, it's going to damage his estate. Because see, back then, um, as men, when men died, they would split up all their land and their inheritance among their kids. And so this kinsman redeemer was probably married with kids, is thinking, well, if I marry Ruth too, and she ends up bearing a whole lot of children because she looks younger, um, I would have to divide up a lot of my inheritance and property among those kids too. And technically, those kids would belong to the line of Elimelech, so yeah, no thanks, I'll, I'll pass. I don't want to jeopardize my kids' um, inheritance. So he decided to say no on it. Therefore, Boaz decides to marry Ruth and continue the family line of Elimelech, and in so doing, really served as a refreshment to both Ruth and Naomi because he chose to protect and provide for them the rest of their lives. Now, I mentioned earlier that the big story that God was writing throughout history of his redemptive plan for you and I and the rest of the world to really be in a restored relationship with him was being carried on step by step through the lives of the people in the story of Ruth. And this is what I meant by that. See, after Ruth and Boaz were married, they had a son whom they named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse, who was the father of the great King David. And if you read the first chapter of Matthew, what you find that from the line of David actually comes 
Jesus Christ, you know, the Messiah. The, the baby that we was born in a manger, that we celebrate his birth on Christmas, who grew up to be a man and died for your sins and mine, that we might have a restored relationship with God after he rose from the dead three days later. You know, when he did that 2,000 years ago, you know, that was as a result of what had happened a 1,000 years prior when three people, very obscurely in the town of Bethlehem, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, were choosing to day in and day out choose to be a refreshment to others. And as a result, they were actually a refreshment to the entire world through the lineage of what came from them. So Proverbs 11.25, that he refreshes others will himself be refreshed. This was true during the time of Ruth and Boaz. It was true when Solomon first wrote it. And it's actually true even today because even today, the same God is sovereignly orchestrating events such that as you and I seek to be refreshed to other people, we will ourselves be refreshed. And I say this is true today because I've gotten to see this firsthand in my life as well, as well as in the life of my family. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, you know, uh, my parents, you know, one of the things our family heritage was just they were radically inclusive and with their life and generous with their time and their money and stuff around them, even though they didn't have a lot of money. Um, and I, and I knew, and one of, I mean, I didn't know all my parents' finances, but I knew enough to know they didn't have a lot because we were renting our house all growing up. This, this place that was sort of home base for refreshment, uh, we were renting. We never bought it growing up. Uh, and that was because for a very simple reason, we didn't have the money to buy it. Um, well, in 2001, uh, after using the house as sort of home base for over a decade, our landlord decides to call and say, Hey, um, good news and bad news. Good news is, or bad news, I'm selling the house. But good news is, I'll give you first dibs if you want to buy it. Um, but she wanted an answer in two weeks. And uh, she wanted to sell the house for about $295,000, which meant in order for my parents to really be able to afford the mortgage payment, they were going to have to put down about $90,000 on this house. Now, the only problem with that was they were about 90000 short of the $90,000 they needed to put down on this house. And so they were thinking, yeah, this isn't probably going to work. And while this two weeks is going on, uh, my mom was actually overseas uh, visiting some, some missionaries that we had sent out from a ministry at UFC, trying to be an encouragement and a refreshment to them. So my dad begins to do what any dad would do. He starts looking for another house. <laughs> um, well, at the time, Randy Lanthrop, the, the senior pastor of uh, Church in the Valley, uh, he when he heard what was going on, he asked my dad if he could write a letter to alumni and the people that had built into they had built into over the years to um, see if they would want to be a part of helping, you know, buy this house for um, my parents. When at first my dad was against the idea, he he didn't think that would be a good idea. But but after some convincing, Randy, uh, he agreed to let Randy write this letter. Well, after the first few days, you know, a few thousand came in. So it looked like, hey, we're seeing some progress. But then there was a little bit of a lull for a while. Um, so we're not sure if it was going to happen. But after about two weeks, uh, when my dad had to actually tell our landlord, you know, yes or no, that we're going to uh, buy this house, over $90,000 actually came in. And when it was all said and done, about $110,000 came in. So my parents were actually able to buy the house and then even begin to do some fix-ups on the house, you know, because it was pretty old. And, and a couple weeks ago, you know, when Jeep was talking about the fix-ups, that, that was the house that he was fixing up. And it was because of that money that they were able to fix up the house. Now, Many of you guys have been to that house. That's the very house they actually purchased with that money. But the house is great. I mean, it's a good house. Uh, 
But the house is not, you know, it's, it's nothing special. It's just a house. But the reason that that story is so uh, important to our family heritage is because we got to see how God really works through the lives of his people to really bless those and to refresh those who are seeking to be refreshed from other people. And so we could really say with confidence, this verse, you know, isn't just true, but it's real. You know, as you seek to be refreshment to others, you yourself will be refreshed one way or another. So if this is true, if the secret to a refreshed life is to be refreshment to others, then how do we begin to apply this? Because like anything from God's word, it's really in the application, not in the information that you really find the blessing. So, and wrapping up, let me give you a couple of suggestions on some things you could be doing. And the band, you guys are welcome to come back up um, as I share these. So the first thing I would suggest is this, and you may have some next steps altogether different from these. That's totally fine. These are just to get the juices flowing for you. Uh, first thing I would say is, as you're around immediate or extended family or coworkers or friends, ask yourself the question, who here can I refresh, rather than the normal question, at least for me, which is, who here can refresh me? Um, because the chances are there are a lot of people that need to be refreshed just as much as you, maybe even more. And then seek to actually be refreshment to those people while you're trusting God to be refreshment to you. That may mean, you know, helping them out with a task or it may mean just being simply sitting still and just listening to them. Sometimes the most refreshing thing you can do is just to shut your mouth and just to listen to someone else. Or maybe even just not talking. That's a refreshment to someone else, depending on how much you talk. Um, at least I know that's true for my wife with me. Uh, now, the second thing you could potentially do is have a family meeting and discuss what kinds of things would be refreshing to each other over the next few weeks and then seek to accomplish some of those. Now, this may be a bit scary because uh, in an effort to refresh you know, your roommates or your kids or your spouse, some of the things that are on your agenda may take a back seat to some of the things that they want to do. Um, but remember that in the long run, if you do that, you know, God will see that you're refreshed one way or another. And as a side note, you know, if you will have that conversation, uh, you'll cut down on some of the arguments about unmet and untold expectations for the holiday season, which will inevitably come up. And so that alone will be a refreshment, just not having those arguments. So it's a good idea to have the conversation. Um, and then third, uh, host people in your homes for meals or games or just, you know, other activities. Uh, I think the last time I spoke at CIV, I actually talked about hosting people in your home for other reasons. And probably the next time I speak at CIV, I'll probably also talk about hosting people in your home. Uh, just because it's such a natural way to include people in your life, to welcome them in. And, you know, there are people that either they're lonely or they just want a break from their home or they need some encouragement, and you can just have them in your home. And that's a very easy way to do that is just host people. And then the last suggestion is daily seek to be energized and refreshed in personal times with God so that you can have energy and eyes to see how you can refresh others. Because see, in the long run, as you seek to refresh others, they will, God will see to it that you're refreshed. But what I found is in the day-to-dayness of life, if I'm not taking time daily to really meditate on God's word and to really just rest in his presence, um, I find myself living more out of a state of ought to rather than really out of a state of just joy of like, I enjoy 
you know, being able to do what I'm doing. And then I find that my, my eyes to see opportunities to refresh others, much less my energy to take action on those begins to dwindle over time because I'm operating out of my own power rather than out of God's. So I'd encourage you daily seek to be energized and refreshed in your personal time with God. And if we decide to believe and live out of the truth of this proverb, you know, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. I can tell you for sure, I think at least two things will will happen. Um, one, you're going to begin to start to feel more refreshed because you're actually choosing to live life in line with the reality that God's created rather than going against it, even though it doesn't feel very intuitive. And then second, if you're a Christian, I think you're going to begin to start to gain the attention of family members or friends who are not believers or are skeptical about your faith because they're going to begin to see, hey, this God that you serve is not just true, but he's real to you, and he's changing your life, and other people around you are being refreshed as a result of it, including them, and you're going to really make Christianity an attractive thing just because you're seeking to be a refreshment to those around you. So during this holiday season, let me, I just want to encourage you to remember that the secret to refresh life is really being a refreshment to others. It's not found in focusing on yourself. It's not found in just getting your agenda done. So as unintuitive and as odd as that may feel and seem at times, if you will put that into practice, I think you'll really see the reality of that in your own life. So let me pray for us, and then we will sing some more songs. Father, thank you for the fact that um, you have given this uh, family heritage to Solomon, that he was able to have the wisdom to reflect on it and to really put it uh, into practice and write it down so that we can know it. And God, I really do pray that um, this would not just be a, a good thought for us, but this would actually be something that we can say because of our own family line and the choices that we make, that verse is actually very true. And God, more importantly, as a result, that uh, people would really be refreshed and that more people would get to experience um, really eternal refreshment to come to know you because they're seeing the lives change of the people here that really do know you. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.